past uh, three weeks, we've been observing uh, Advent here at ELM. And as mentioned in weeks past, Advent is a season characterized by two things, by waiting and watching for the Lord's coming. Now, because Advent immediately precedes Christmas, people typically understand Advent as a time to prepare for the Lord's first coming at Christmas, right? We think that Advent is a time where we get ready for Jesus' coming at Christmas. However, Advent is and was actually a season not to reflect upon his first coming, but a time to reflect on and increase hope in our Lord's second coming. So Advent is actually a season not about the first coming, but a season for Jesus' second coming. For example, if you were living uh, in the medieval times, and let's say you went to church during Advent, because everyone went to church during the medieval times. Let's say you went to church at Advent. The four themes that you would hear for those four weeks are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So the last Sunday before Christmas, you would actually come to church and you would sing songs and hear messages on hell, right? Not so Christmassy at all. But then after that, a few days later, you would come to church on Christmas Eve and then you would celebrate life and light, joy and peace in the birth of Jesus Christ. Two very contrasting moods. You have judgment on one hand and joy on the other. You have the final day of the world on one hand and then the first day of a child on the other. And so the church, they, they observed Advent as a time to prepare for judgment, to prepare for the Lord's second coming, and then immediately after, they would celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to ask the question, why? Why did the church do this? Was it just a scheduling mishap that they think, oh, you know what, we need to squeeze everything in before the end of the year? No, it was intentional. You see, the church, for four weeks, they would fixate their minds and their hearts upon the return of Jesus. For four weeks, you would long for Jesus' return and how in his return he was going to right all that was wrong, how he was going to restore all the ruins and redeem all the broken. You would fix your minds and your hearts upon that and then shortly after, that hope would be secured and anchored in Jesus' first coming. You see, the logical flow is this. If Jesus came in the flesh, if Jesus came in humility to die, will he not come in glory to finish the work he began? So after four weeks of Advent, as you long for Jesus' return, it would be secured as you remember, yes, Jesus did come, and he will come again. You know, if you think about the uh, famous oratorio, uh, Handel's Messiah, uh, Handel's Messiah is almost synonymous with Christmas music. Always during Christmas time, you would hear uh, this performance and hear the songs. And perhaps the most famous piece in that oratorio, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a song that borrows heavily from Revelation. And hallelujah is not about the incarnation. 
hallelujah, is actually about his return. There's that one line in the middle, right? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. Uh, I, sorry, I tried practicing that. It, it's, this, it's this idea that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Handel's Messiah is about Jesus' return and his everlasting rule. And so, before we celebrate Jesus coming in the flesh, before we celebrate Christmas in just a few days, I want to today, on the last Sunday of Advent, I want to focus our attention on Jesus coming in glory on the last day. And there's no better place to turn to than the last words of God's inspired scripture. If we could uh, take a look at today's passage, Revelation 22, I want to break it down into these three sections. Okay, uh, confirmation, exhortation, and invitation. The last section of God's inspired scripture uh, we can break it down into confirmation, exhortation, and invitation. <clears throat> First, uh, confirmation. Before this book is closed, before God's scripture is finally closed, Jesus, he confirms that he will return with these words. He says first in verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. He also says in verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And if that was not enough, in verse 20, he says, surely I am coming soon soon. Now, this confirms that it is Jesus who is coming, Jesus. Not an angel, not some imposter, not a counterfeit, not a shadow, not a figure, but the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus himself is going to return. Jesus himself. You know, it's interesting that when John hears these words, when John hears the promises and the confirmation that Jesus is going to return in glory, John, he can't help himself but to feel a sense of awe and worship. And so, in a spirit of spontaneity, John, he just bows down before the angel in front of him. You know, John, to understand, he can't help himself. He's so excited when he hears about Jesus coming back and so he just bows down before this angel. And the angel tells him, no. The angel affirms him, no, I am not the one. Don't worship me. Worship God. It confirms that it is Jesus who is coming back. You know, this passage is a reminder that in our waiting, in our waiting for Jesus, there is no substitute there is no replacement. We must not settle for anything or anyone besides Jesus himself. Now for us, you know, an angel is pretty close. If you ever come face to face with an angel and see an angel in all of its terror and all of its glory, you would be tempted to bow down before it. But here, today's passage reminds us that even something as close to Jesus as an angel falls short in comparison. You know, I understand that waiting can be a difficult thing. Waiting for Jesus' return can be difficult. 
especially when there are things in this world that promise the same things as Jesus, especially when there are things in this world that have almost the same allure and the same appeal as Jesus. But Scripture tells us they are counterfeits. They fall short. There is no replacement or substitute for Jesus himself. You know, many years ago, uh, a close friend of mine uh, bought me uh, a gift, and they were a pair of Beats earphones, you know, Beats by Dre. Uh, This was years ago when, when they first came out, and it was an amazing, amazing present. But after a few months, the headphones or the earphones, they stopped working. So I decided, okay, I have a pair of very, very expensive earphones, um, and they just stopped working. After a few months, there must be a defect. And so I decided, you know what, I should call up Beats for their warranty. Now I call up Beats, and the lady on the other line says, okay, thank you for calling in. What is the model that you have? And I tell her, they're the earphones. And she asks, what's the color? And I say, they're purple. Now don't judge me, they were purple earphones, (laughs) for real. Uh, And when I said, hey, they're purple earphones, the lady says, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have purple earphones. And I thought, what do you mean you don't have purple earphones? And I said, I I have the box in front of me. I have uh, the serial number in front of me. There are beats. What are you talking about? And then she says, no, I'm sorry. They are not real beats. And at this point, I'm really upset. And you know when you're upset, you know, you want to talk to the manager, right? But I was even more upset than that. I said, you know what? Let me talk to Dr. Dre. (laughs) I need to talk to the doctor. Put him on the line. This is real. What are you saying? Because I know my friend. He's not going to buy me something fake. Now, so I I need to get to the bottom of this. So uh, I start an investigation. In other words, I do a Google search, right? And there, on this foreign website, are Dr. Dre purple earphones. Now, I looked carefully, and I thought, oh, my goodness, is this fake? And I looked carefully, and the difference is this. Any earphones that say, Beats by Dr. Dre are fake, but Beats by Dre are real. Small difference, two letters and a period. Doctor, you can't have doctor in front of it. And so, you know, I realized, oh, my goodness, these are fake. And because they are fake, it was a counterfeit. And because it was a counterfeit, there was no warranty, no guarantee, and I couldn't return it. Now, I called my friend quickly and said, hey, what is this? And, and, you know, he he explained to me, he's like, you know what, I didn't buy it, my secretary bought it. And so he goes, talks to his secretary, and his secretary, you know, she's so upset, and she apologizes uh, over and over again. She said, you know, they just shipped faster, and they were slightly cheaper. I thought they were real. And then I told my friend, oh, no, not your secretary, Megan. Megan doesn't know beats. How could you trust her with You know, counterfeits have no value. If you've ever held counterfeit money in your hand before, they may look real, they may feel real, but counterfeit money actually has no value. Friends, this is what this passage is teaching us, that if Jesus is the sole object of our affection and the sole subject of our worship, he is the one whom we should be waiting for, nothing and no one else. You know, imagine a child, right, standing in a street corner. His father promised him, hey, I'm going to pick you up exactly from here after work. Wait for me here. 
And of course, as the child is waiting, many, many people pass by. Some even inquire. They ask, what are you doing here? Who are you waiting for? Some even offer a ride. I can drop you off at home. His friends even pass by, say, hey, let's go to the playground and play. There's even someone who passed by who looks just like his father, who has the same stature, the same skin color, and the same raincoat. But you know, the child would be foolish. The child would be stupid. The child, it would be dangerous for the child to go with anyone who is not his father. Revelation 22 is a reminder for us this morning that no religious leader, no politician, no celebrity, no husband or wife, not even angels in heaven can ever be a substitute for our Lord. There is no technological advancement There is no government, there is no utopian society that can ever compare to the glory that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, there is no bodily pleasure, no intellectual insight, no euphoria in this world that can compare to the joy and the satisfaction that will come our way when our Lord Jesus returns. You know, C.S. Lewis reminds us of this um, as he If we can go to the next slide. In in his work, Mere Christianity, he says this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Man feels sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus in today's passage confirms to wait for him that he is coming back. Jesus himself is returning. The second point to make is not only is there a confirmation of his return, but there is an exhortation. There's a command. There's an encouragement There's a word to respond. You know, because Jesus is coming, because he is coming soon, the angel tells John, hey, make sure you do everything that's written in this book. Don't add, don't take away. Don't even seal it up, but hold fast to the words in this book. You know, in chapter 22 uh, in today's passage, it doesn't state explicitly what we ought to do. But if we go back to the beginning of the book, the Holy Spirit speaks to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And there, the exhortation is quite clear, what we are to do in anticipation of Jesus' return. In fact, the Spirit says it seven times, seven times to all seven churches, the church in Ephesus, Sardis, Simria, Laodicea, to all the seven churches, the angel says the same exact thing, to the one who conquers to the one who conquers, 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 to the one who overcomes and endures, to the one who perseveres, I will give to them to eat from the tree of life. You know, if you can sum up Revelation in one sentence, it's this. Jesus, our King, is coming back soon to defeat all the evils and the principalities of this world. So, 
Be watchful and wait. Don't give up. Be ready because Jesus is coming soon. You know, the Bible likens Jesus' return to birth. The Bible describes Jesus' birth, uh, Jesus' coming, to be a lot like a child being born. With the birth of a new child, as many of you have experienced, you know around what time. There are expected due dates, but the exact moment, no one knows. Now, if you or your spouse or someone you know is expecting, what happens? You start to prepare. You start to live your life and prepare, right, in anticipation of that child being born. And so what do you do? You schedule hospital visits. Uh, You start buying baby products. You make a nursery. And after about 37 weeks, when the time is fully up, that's when your family is now on high alert. Now, being on high alert doesn't mean that you wait in the hospital. In fact, if you ever try to go to the hospital when you're pregnant, saying, you know, I think the baby's coming, the hospital will send you right back. Go home. Don't wait here. Don't wait here. But if you know that it is any day now, people, the family, friends, they are all on high alert. Now, every day is still a normal day. You eat regularly. You sleep regularly. And people probably still go to work. But they don't schedule anything that would take them away from, for a long time. And if you've been in that situation, you know what it's like. When everyone is on high alert, every phone call, every text message that comes, you wonder, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? That is the kind of watchfulness that Revelation and the Bible is talking about. To be alert, to be on guard. We don't know exactly when, but to be on high alert and to prepare for that moment, to live your life in light of that coming reality. You know, the Bible also likens Jesus' return to a thief in the night. Jesus says, when I come back, it would be a lot like a thief coming at night. In other words, Jesus' coming will happen when you least expect it. There's almost a a shock factor, a (gasps) surprise factor at Jesus' return. Now, I remember growing up, my sister and I, uh, we would stay home by ourselves uh, six days out of the week. My parents, they came home around 8.30, and uh, they strictly told us, when you get home from work, or when you get home from school, my parents told my sister and I, don't watch TV past 6 p.m. Do your homework and read your library books. And so, of course, we watch TV, right? (laughs) Don't watch TV, they're not home, so we watch TV. And around 8.30, Right, that's the time when they would come home. Now, we didn't know exactly when they would come home, but we lived in an apartment building, and we would hear the elevator door open around 8.30. And then you can hear footsteps four feet, you know, just walking. That's when we knew. And so we would quickly turn off the TV, run into the room, you know, open up a book, pretend like we're reading, right? Now, one evening, it was around 7 p.m., we were watching TV, my sister's in the kitchen making something, and I go to the bathroom. And after I go to the bathroom and I come out the hallway, there I see my mom and dad in the living room with the TV on. And the show was 90210, the forbidden show. (gasps) You're not supposed to watch that, right? And it turns out, my parents, that evening, they came home early. 
And I still remember, you know, after coming out from the bathroom, walking down the hallway, and there when I saw my parents, it was complete shock. My jaw dropped, and I was just frozen. I did not expect them. You know, later on, you know, I found out, my mom told me, she said, hey, you know, I knew you, I, I know you guys watch TV every night, because after she would come home, she would feel the back of the TV, <laughs> and it would still be really hot, you know. You, you can't get away, you know. Thank God for plasma TVs nowadays. But she knew. She knew. You know, Jesus' return is like a baby being born. It's like a thief coming at night. And you know, in replete in Scripture, replete in the Bible, are these commands that are connected with Jesus' return, these exhortations. Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, so be ready. Jesus is coming at any moment, so be watchful in prayer. Jesus is coming at any time, so don't grow weary in doing good. Jesus is coming, so continue to fight the good fight. Jesus is coming soon, so in your suffering, endure. Jesus is coming soon, so in all of our pain, in all of our suffering, this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, the commands to persevere and endure are tied with this idea that Jesus is coming and it will soon end. The final thing to look over is uh, invitation. Revelation 22, as many of you know, is the end of the Bible. It's the last chapter in God's holy word. And Revelation 22, it seems to be the end. They're concluding, the angel is now summarizing, and there seems to be no more changing. Right? Everything is set, especially after uh, a verse like 2211. This is what uh, the angel says. Um, after he says, Jesus is coming soon, he says, let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, the angel says, listen, I'm coming soon, or Christ is coming soon, and everything now is set. At least that's what it seems. Right? There are no more changes. There's no more swapping sides. That's what it seems. But still, we find, as we edge towards the end of the book, in verse 17, there's one final invitation. Our Lord says, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, I find this to be amazing, that as the Bible is closing, as God's inspired word is coming to an end, there is one final invitation. Come. Friends, you know what it's like to be the first ones on a plane. You've sat before um, as the first one, you know, on a plane, because you're all anxious that the plane's going to take off with you. You know what it's like to be at the first stop of a train station. And when the train rolls in, everyone gets out, and as the train is going back the other way, you know what it's like to be the first one sitting there. You know what it's like to be the first one in a chapel as we gather to worship. But you also know what it's like to catch the plane on the final boarding announcement. You know what it's like to squeeze into the subway as the doors close right behind you. And here in Revelation 22:17, 17, 
is God's final invitation. Come. Come. It's not too late. Come. Your chasm is not too wide. Come. Your sins are not too great. Come. Come and wash your clothes in the blood of Jesus. If you are thirsty, come and drink without price. Now, 2018 is coming to a close, and we will be celebrating Christmas in just a few days. And, you know, I thought to myself as we end the year 2018, I thought to myself, you know, how many times did my mind drift to Jesus' return? You know, this is a question that I would like to ask all of you here this morning. As you close out 2018, in your desire for something, how long or how often did you think about Jesus coming soon? In your desire or in your loneliness, how often did you think of Jesus' return? In your suffering, how often did your mind drift to Jesus' promise, behold, I am coming soon? You know, this morning I encourage you to bathe your soul in this promise and to live your life in anticipation of that. You know, much of living life the life that we live here on earth, much of it is in light of the future. Yes, some of our lives are reactionary, but most of life is anticipatory. For instance, you go to school in anticipation of that job, that career, that diploma. You enter into relationships in anticipation of something more fuller, a more fruitful relationship. You begin ventures in light of the future promises and the payoffs. A lot of the life that we live is in light of the future, in light of what is to come. And this morning, I urge the saints gathered here to live life in light of Jesus' return, to center your life upon this truth that Jesus is coming and he is coming soon. To live life with this truth in the forefront of your minds. This truth that Jesus is coming again. To live your life in light of Jesus' promise that he will return. If I can close with this, uh, Jonathan Edwards the famed English Puritan. When he was a young man, he um, wrote in his diary uh, just some of the things that he resolved to do. He wanted to live in such a way that was honoring to God. He wanted to live in such a way that was in light of the future reality that was coming. And these are the thoughts and the commitments that a young Jonathan Edwards wrote. There's over a hundred of these, I believe, but I've only selected a few to share with you. This is what he says, resolved. I will live in such a way as I will wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if I expected it would not be more than an hour before I hear the last trump sound. Resolved, never from this day until the day I die act as if I were in any way my own but entirely and altogether 
belong to God and then live in a way agreeable to this reality. Resolved, I will act in such a way as I think I will judge to have been best and most prudent when I have come into the future world, heaven. Resolved, to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can imagine I would if I had already seen all the happiness of heaven as well as all the torments of hell. Friends, as we end out this year, may you be resolved to live your life in light of this future promise that Jesus, he is coming. He is coming soon. Join me in prayer at this time.